The lesson this evening is focusing on atheism and secular humanism, and we're going to be looking at two main passages of Scripture, uh, one in Ephesians 4 and the other in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So I'll remind you of that as we get to it, but I want to give you that by way of introduction. I've given you a, a, a different worldview definition each week. There's a lot of consistencies in them, a lot of presentation that are the same, uh, but at the same time, there's some uh, distinctiveness to these definitions as well. And this one is a shorter definition from Danny Aiken. Uh, he says, a worldview is a comprehensive view of life through which we think, <clears throat> understand, and judge, and which determines our approach to life and meaning. And then he added, uh, worldview definition from Russ Bush, who was philosophy uh, professor for many years at Southeastern Seminary. And he said, <clears throat> a worldview is that basic set of assumptions that gives meaning to one's thoughts. A worldview is the set of assumptions that someone has about the way things are, about what things are, and about why things are. And then finally, uh, James Oltheus uh, on worldview said this. He said, one's worldview is perhaps best reflected by one's answers to the ultimate questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? What is it all about? Is there a God? How can I live and die happily? And what are good and evil? Now, there are some basic functions to a worldview. Everybody has a worldview the lens that you look at life through, and then that determines the actions that you take and how you carry out your life. But there's some basic functions of a worldview. A worldview seeks to provide a coherent and organized thought system for life and for decision-making. It attempts to define uh, purpose. Uh, it brings sense to life by offering explanations for a lot of things that seem irrational. It determines our values and establishes what we think is really important. And then it guides our actions because it assigns meaning and priorities to those actions. So just by way of quick review, uh, we looked at how a biblical worldview answers those key questions. That was the foundational lesson in this particular series. And then we focused on the doctrine of general revelation, which is the things that everybody can see in God's creation as well as special revelation, which is the written word and the living word. And then we talked a little bit about the meta-narrative of the Bible, which just basically means the big story of the Bible and why critical thinking is important to understand and to apply the big story of the Bible. And then theology being the study of God, and then we looked at a number of the ologies uh, focusing on different aspects of how we know what we know. And then theism, which believes that reality's ultimate principle is God, as well as naturalism, the belief that all that exists is physical or material matter. So we are dependent on God for life, for salvation, for sustaining power, and I would say to you that a life without God is a life without meaning or purpose. Now, as I mentioned, this lesson focuses on atheism and secular humanism, and then we're going to have two final lessons. What I've decided to do is we have two Wednesday evenings before the end of this calendar year. And on those two evenings that we have for Bible study before the end of this calendar year, 
We're going to look at the exclusivity of Christ in a pluralistic world and why Jesus is the only way to the Father. And then we're going to look at how to apply a biblical worldview to life. So what I hope to do in the last one is just kind of pull all these ideas together and say this is how we apply this uh, to life. So I want to start this evening with uh, the focus on atheism. And as I've been doing, as we've gone through this, I've tried to give you some straightforward definitions of the particular topics that we're looking at and then look at the scripture and how that applies and then come back to uh, why people think these things and and how we can intersect with that and share the gospel with them. So atheism by definition encompasses anyone who does not believe in the supernatural uh, or God or gods specifically uh, and Arguments for the non-existence of God have some variations. So when we say that somebody is an atheist, it's not monolithic. They don't necessarily all believe the same things in the same way, but the foundation is the same. Meaning that atheism can either be narrow or it can be wide. And atheism is not as much a denial of God as it is a rejection of information regarding a God. Atheism is a big umbrella, and there are as many ways to disbelieve as there are to believe. So I want to read from Ephesians chapter 4, and I want to pick up reading in verse 17, and uh, we'll read verse 17 and 18. Here's what the scripture says. So I tell you on this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. In this section of Ephesians, there's very much an emphasis on what it means to walk worthy of the calling that we have in Christ. To walk worthy in the calling, the worthy walk reminds us that this affects personal holiness. So the scripture is telling us how we're to live. And to do this, the Apostle Paul paints a graphic picture. And this graphic picture is of how unbelievers live, which is how the Christians had lived before they met Christ. So what he's doing is he's uh, essentially comparing and contrasting. And he's pulling together these ideas to help us understand how and why unbelievers live as they do. And in verse 17, there's a general statement about how unbelievers live, and it references in the futility of their mind. Verse 18, he shows why they live this way. The reason that they live this way is because they're darkened uh, in their understanding. They're alienated from life with God. They're ignorant of God because they do not know God, and their hearts are hardened due to sin. As a result of all that, they give themselves over to sensuality and impurity. All these things are specifically things that that, uh, Ephesians identifies that are characteristic of unbelievers. Now, let's unpack these and think about these uh, for a moment one by one. Unbelievers walk in the futility of their minds. This word futility is an interesting word uh, because it's the same idea of what we find in the book of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes, the idea is vanity, and it comes from a Hebrew word meaning breath or vapor, referring to something that is transitory or is lacking in substance. 
and um, somebody said we could we could picture a child chasing soap bubbles he grabs one but it bursts in his hand leaving him with nothing and one early christian writer gives examples of building houses by the seashore on the sand chasing the wind shooting at the stars or pursuing one's shadow and none of these activities result in anything of lasting value or significance so let me restate it another way a life without god is a futile life a life without god is a vain life that has no ultimate purpose unbelievers walk in the darkness of their own understanding similar again to living in the futility of their mind but it goes further because it speaks to why we think what we think and how we are spiritually alienated from god if we think certain things and we don't believe Unbelievers walk in alienation from the life of God because sin separates it. Sin has the effect of, of alienating us from God and, and separating us from God. And unbelievers walk in spiritual ignorance because of the hardness of their hearts. They do not know God. Um, ignorance translates from a word that we actually get our word agnostic from. Uh, and ignorance, as you know, is lacking information it's not an aptitude issue it's simply that people don't know certain things because their hearts and their minds are darkened so therefore they've not maybe genuinely considered uh, what God presents in his word and then unbelievers walk in unrighteousness even to the point of losing the ability to feel shame or embarrassment and that's where the sensuality and a lot of the uh, immorality comes from now you might be thinking I know unbelievers who are decent people uh, from the world standpoint. They're committed to their marriages. Uh, they love their kids. They pay their bills. They're good neighbors. And all that might be true from the world's perspective. But what we are comparing this to and what we are drawing the conclusion from is God's righteousness. And when we think about any of these things compared to God's righteousness, his assessment as it relates to righteousness is different than what we can simply see with our eyes and the scripture is clear that our righteousness is as filthy rags it does nothing to make us right with God it's only through his righteousness that we can be reconciled to him so we're told to take off or to put off the old man and to put on the new man like changing clothes like you got an old dirty set of clothes and you need to get changed so you get cleaned up and you get a new set of clothes on that's the analogy that is drawn and as Christians we've been shown the way to walk and it's is as if Jesus has turned around and put us in the right direction and now he's saying walk in that direction if you want to make if you want to know me and if you want to make progress and you want to grow as a disciple and you want to have ultimate meaning then you've got to follow me the English philosopher John Gray who is also an atheist identified seven types of atheist he identified new atheism and that's basically rooted in the evolutionary theories that came into vogue during the 19th century, uh, leading to a view that uh, humanity collectively replaces God. That's the outcome of it. And the new atheists are uh, very aggressive. These are the Richard Dawkins types. These are the kind that uh, promote not freedom of religion. They promote freedom from religion. These are the people that at the first thought or the first discussion of any kind of religion in the public sector or any kind of faith in the public sector particularly Christianity specifically and mostly Christianity they get all up in arms about it 
and are very aggressive about it. The second kind that he identified is secular humanism, which is the second part of the lesson this evening. And secular humanism holds the idea that humans are gradually improving. And uh, when you uh, take it on face value, it's something that, that relies on human reason and logic and uh, secular ethics and ends up in the same place as atheism, as I'll argue here in just a moment. And then scientific atheism, which is a commitment of human advancement through scientific knowledge. Uh, the fourth is political atheists, which are the atheistic states which try to advance the whole concept of atheism from a political perspective. So this would be the old communist bloc. Um, this would be uh, communist China. I mean, there are a number of different examples around the world. Even when we had a missionary here recently, and he was talking about uh, the heavy influence of atheism in Central Europe. Um, that came from political atheism, and, and that's, that's what this writer's talking about. And then something that's called uh, misotheism, which means the God-haters. Uh, these are people that absolutely hate the idea of Christianity and have a very clear response to it. And then the sixth type that he identifies is atheism without progress. So he argues that uh, this type of atheism, rather than upholding some type of scientific atheism, uh, destroys the foundations that underlie science and basically just say there's no God and there's no meaning, there's no ultimate purpose. This would be the most dark form probably of atheism. And then finally, number seven is mystical atheism. Uh, the idea that's mixed in somehow that there can be these experiences uh, kind of supernaturally, if you will, that don't have any connection to God. So as I said, it's important to note that atheists and agnostics and people who are unaffiliated with any type of religion are not all one and the same. They've got different perspectives of how they arrived at where they arrived, but they come to the same conclusions, basically speaking. Um, and then we talked about how there is very much a movement with people who have dropped out of church. The term for it is the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. But that group very much is not predominantly atheist. There are people, many of them who've grown up in church or they've gotten distracted and they've gotten out of church. But at the foundational level, if you were to say, what do you believe? Then they're going to say, yes, I believe there is a God, even if they don't believe the gospel or know Jesus Christ necessarily. So these are not all the same. Now, there are some important things to note about atheism. Atheism claims that science accounts for the, for the origins of the universe. And the theory of evolution has been called the atheist's creation story. It begins with nothing. And in the atheistic view, there really was nothing, surely not a God, who would have acted as the first cause. So they appeal to things like the Big Bang to have produced the universe. And then billions of years passed and the first life form spontaneously came into being without any help. And all the plants and the animals on the earth, including people who are categorized as animals, evolved. Um, origin of life researchers such as uh, Paul Davies and Stuart Kaufman will readily admit that no observed natural processes can produce life from non-life. However, they still hold uh, to their positions and they do the same thing as secular cosmologists that we talked about a few weeks back. They take a gig gigantic leap 
and they believed that the required natural processes already existed, and for some reason we just haven't discovered them yet. Uh, but they're out there somewhere, and that's what they argue from. Uh, Richard Dawkins, who I mentioned earlier, uh, is adamant that once first life formed, um, then that's how you can explain the evolution of people. Uh, and all of this is wrapped up somewhat with philosophical naturalism as well, uh, the idea that the origins of the universe and of life are entirely natural processes. Uh, but the problem is it's not scientific at all because science, by definition, is something that is observable, repeatable, and verifiable. And the very issue of the proponents that I just mentioned is they'll even concede that it's not observable, repeatable, and verifiable. But there's something out there that can describe it. We just haven't found it yet to describe why evolution is what it is. But yet they hold uh, with dogmatism to the theory. Atheism also presents no inherent reason for human existence. Now, some of them will argue against this. um, But the problem is that's the end focus. If this is all there is and there's nothing else more and we just die and it's over with, we just get absorbed back into the universe somehow, then that's a hopeless perspective. Um, And William Lane Craig, who's a philosopher and a Christian theologian, uh, debates all these issues. And and he said this about this particular point. He said, uh, this is just uh, to say that we can pretend that the universe exists for some purpose. And and this is just make-believe. He's talking about the people that say, oh, no, we have purpose, but yet hold atheism. He said, that's just make-believe. This is the subjective illusion of purpose. But there is on this view no objective purpose for the universe. And we, of course, would never deny that you could develop subjective purposes for your life. And he says the point is on atheism, they are all illusory. illusory. And that is why I agree with Richard Dawkins when he said, at the bottom of this is an emotional question rather than a rational one. Isn't that interesting? Even Richard Dawkins would say that this is an emotional question rather than a rational one. The atheist, argues Craig, uh, shows a great practical inconsistency, uh, which leads him to conclude that atheism is irrational, but at the same time argue for a rationality of purpose. And then atheism rejects the idea of an eternity for people. I've already mentioned that, but I want to go a little bit deeper on this. Um, Atheists do not believe in an afterlife. They do not believe in an eternal soul. They do not believe that anything survives death. And from an atheist perspective, death is the end of consciousness. It is the permanent cessation of all cognitive and emotional functions. They also, of course, reject the idea of divine judgment. And they reject the idea of heaven and hell. Now, as we'll see when we get to secular humanism in particular, what this does is that it puts man in a position as his own God, even though they wouldn't refer to it as such. And because we're our own God, and there's no God to whom we are ultimately accountable, then we can do as we please. We can make our own rules. It turns into situational ethics, and all types of chaos follows. So I believe atheism is without meaning, When you ask the question, why am I here? There's no answer. Uh, Because life has some kind of meaning. But if we can't answer it beyond uh, when it's over, it's over. uh, Or that we're just animals headed for the grave and the universe is just spinning. Then there's no meaning to life in that. 
Uh, atheism also has no purpose. Um, is there any purpose for our brief lives? Why do we exist here? And in this worldview, it doesn't matter how we live because there's no standard for right and wrong. Who decides good and evil when there's no moral foundation? Uh, the individual, the society, the government, who's the determiner? And if we're animals, we should not be surprised at the outcome. And as I've already said tonight, I believe that atheism is without hope. Um, we typically might have 70 plus years on this planet. We might have 90 or 100 if we're particularly blessed. And life is a vapor. It's short. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. And if there's nothing beyond this, then it puts us in a place of that futility that I talked about a little bit earlier. So let me suggest some ideas of how to share the gospel with atheists. This is probably the most difficult category, this and secular humanists and agnostics wrapped up in it, uh, because of oftentimes the aggression that there is against Christianity, the anger that there is against Christianity, the, the, a lot of times even malice against Christianity, so it makes it difficult. So I would say to you, approach an atheist with love just as you would anybody else. Uh, show respect to that person. Uh, you're interacting with them because you care about them. You believe the ideas that you have. You want to present them in, in, a, in a logical, clear way. And you want to respect the person. You're not trying to win an argument. In fact, if it digresses into an argument, you probably have already uh, lost the purpose that you started with. Uh, and then answer questions in discussion. It's okay to say, you know, I'm not sure about that question, but I will get you an answer. And then clearly share the gospel and trust the Holy Spirit. That's the bottom line. Nobody gets saved unless the Holy Spirit brings conviction to their lives when the gospel is presented to them and their heart is changed. And that's why we have to depend on the Holy Spirit, share the gospel clearly, and trust God to change lives. And he does it all the time. And he changes people that we would look at and say, there's no way that guy, there's no way that lady would ever believe the gospel, ever follow Jesus. And it happens all the time where people are moved in their hearts and the Holy Spirit changes their lives when they put their faith in Jesus. So that's atheism. Now let's talk about secularism, uh, secular humanism uh, for the remaining time that we have. Here's the definition of secular humanism. And I got this off of the American Humanist Association, so I didn't make this up. This is their wording, and here's what it says. Secular humanism is a philosophy, belief system, or life stance that embraces human reason, logic, secular ethics, and philosophical naturalism, while specifically rejecting religious dogma, supernaturalism, and superstition as the basis of morality and decision-making. Secular humanism posits that human beings are capable of being ethical and moral without religion or belief in a deity. Uh, and that's from Fred Edwards uh, of the American Humanist Association. Now, it's believed that the terminology secular humanism was actually first used uh, by uh, religious thinkers in the, in the middle of the 20th century. So this is relatively new terminology, but... The concept and the underpinnings of it are, are not new at all. So I want to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I want to read verse 18 through verse 23. And I begin reading in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 3. And he says, Let no one deceive himself. If any among you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he can become wise. 
For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Since it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the reasonings of the wise are futile. So let no one boast in human leaders, for everything is yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, everything is yours and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. So what are we to do about this wisdom that is the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the world? How are we to understand this? Well, we're to glorify God by pursuing his wisdom. We glorify God by pursuing his wisdom. Now, I don't know if you picked up on this here, but there is uh, at least a small amount of sarcasm in Paul's words here, if not a significant amount of sarcasm. And I say that because the Corinthians considered themselves wise in the present age. This was one of their problems, their love of worldly wisdom. And God wants us to pursue his wisdom. And the church evidently at that time, at least in part, had lost sight of their significance in Christ. And Paul is writing to them and he's saying, listen, there's a clear contrast between the wisdom of the world and, and the wisdom of God. And you need to fall after the wisdom of God because the, the wisdom of the world is, is not going to lead to anything but a dead end. And we glorify God by being willing to be considered foolish in the eyes of the world. So what should a person do if they're wise in this age? Well, Paul says that we should become a fool so that we can become genuinely wise. In other words, we're to renounce human wisdom. We're to renounce humanism. We're to renounce man-centered philosophy, even if it means that we might be called a fool. Now, obviously, he's not telling them to be genuinely foolish. Um, the phrase wise in this age is referring to being wise according to the flesh. That type of wisdom is actually deception rather than truth. But he goes on to show us from the Old Testament that this is true. So in verse 19, he refers to the, to the Old Testament in a quote from Job 5 and verse 13. And the so-called wisdom of this world uh, thinks itself to have outsmarted God like a clever animal outsmarts a hunter. But in verse 20, Paul quotes from Psalm 94 and verse 11. And I think it'd do us well just to read uh, verse 8 through 11 of Psalm 94, which is what he quotes from in part in Psalm 94. He says, Understand, you senseless among the people, and you fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, shall he not hear? He who formed the eye, shall he not see? He who instructs the nations, shall he not correct? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are futile. So he's appealing to the Old Testament narrative, and he's saying, this is what God says about the wisdom of the world. And he concludes the matter in verse 21 with clarity, and he says, therefore let no one boast in men. Now let me just give you a little example of what the wisdom of uh, the world might uh, look like. Just yesterday, uh, the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and Penn refused to say whether calling for the genocide of Jews is bullying and harassment according to their codes of conduct. 
all three were asked. Now, these are supposed to be some of the smartest people in the world, but who are the embodiment of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. They are the embodiment of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. They're asked directly, is it bullying and is it wrong, according to your code of conduct, to call for the genocide of Jews? They would not answer. The only answer that they would give, which they had planned together beforehand, was, well, it depends on the context. Okay, what kind of fool do you have to be to think that it depends on the context whether or not calling for the genocide of Jews is in fact wrong? That's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about people who are wise according to this age, but who are, are not wise in the sight of God. And it's just unacceptable. I mean, the, the things that we're seeing right now in the media a lot, with, a lot of this, with a lot of the anti-Semitism and the, the uh, situational ethics and all that go along with that are just unbelievable. But here we are. And then I would say that secular humanism is rooted in both atheism and agnosticism. Now, there's some different varieties of humanism, uh, but what makes secular humanism distinct is that it embraces non-theism. There's a piece uh, from uh, Free Inquiry published by the Council for Secular Humanism that said, secular humanism begins with atheism. It's the absence of belief in a deity and agnosticism or skepticism. They reject the transcendent due to a lack of evidence from their perspective. Now, these are not one and the same. Atheism means a complete absence of a belief in God. Uh, it, it's the absence of the theistic belief. The basic tenet of secular humanism is that human beings are capable of being ethical, moral, and rational without any supernatural interference. So they hold to things that are not uh, ultimately remotely uh, religious. And then at the heart of it, secular humanism is man-centered. It is a man-centered system of ethics in particular. Uh, some of you might be familiar with the name uh, Francis Schaeffer. Uh, Francis Schaeffer was one of the leading, if not the leading, apologetic voices for the Christian faith in the latter part of the 20th century. He was highly influential um, on matters of the faith and, and really uh, thinking through these issues. And he said, we must understand what we are talking about when we use the word humanism. And, th and this, is, this is it in a snapshot. Humanism means that the man is the measure of all things. That's what it means. The Council for Secular Humanism said because no transcendent power will save us, secular humanists maintain that humans must take responsibility for themselves. Secular humanism is a comprehensive non-religious life stance that encompasses a naturalistic philosophy, a cosmic outlook rooted in science, and a consequentialist ethical system. And Secular humanism in all of this also rests on the evolutionary theory. With the universe being self-existing, not created, we're part of nature, we're nothing different than the animals. And um, creation by God or any type of divine guidance uh, would be uh, rejected. Um, the Harvard evolutionist, George Gaylord Simpson, uh, who wrote uh, many years ago, not currently, said man is the result of a purposeless and natural process that did not have him in mind. He was not planned. He's a state of matter, a form of life, a sort of animal, and a species of the order primates, akin nearly or remotely to all life and indeed to all that is material. 
You say, where does all this come from? Well, it starts and it is built on a rejection of the Bible. The authority of the scripture is not accepted nor believed. And they're convinced that the Bible is written by ignorant, superstitious people in a cruel age. And the people are just unenlightened and the book is just errors filled with errors and harmful teaching. And they believe that people are good. It denies the sin nature. Uh, there's no concept of the sin nature. Sin's nothing more than a social construct. Just depends on what your community standard is. And there's, an, there's uh, a denial of good and evil. So you say, well, if secular humanism begins, b- believes that people are good and denies the sin a- nature and ultimate accountability to God, then what are the implications of this in the culture and, and in the world? Well, certainly things like euthanasia, legalize euthanasia, because if life's expendable, when we get old, somebody just kind of do away with you, it'd be more convenient for the rest of us. Or you're disabled or your special needs or something else, then why not just approve euthanasia and let's just make it convenient for everybody else. Along those lines is also the subject of abortion, which carries the same logic. And uh, legalization of things like same-sex marriage and multiple things that are contrary to what the scripture says and what the scripture guides us to do um, is the fruit of this. Now, the interesting, interesting thing about all of this is that secular humanism is tolerant as long as you hold to what they believe. Now, here's the key. Tolerance is defined as the ability or willingness to tolerate something. Tolerance would be unnecessary unless inherently you're saying that you disagree with something, but you're going to be kind about it and you're going to tolerate them, not celebrate, not celebrate it. And it requires positions or beliefs that are different from what you hold to, and therefore you're tolerant uh, to be able to be kind to people and live in the world with people that believe things that are different from you. Now, what's interesting, there are a few things more intolerant to our postmodern, post-Christian, post-truth culture than Christianity. Tolerance is not saying that all religious views are equally correct. That is not tolerance. It is respecting someone's right to disagree with you. And tolerance demands disagreement. Now, let's track with this a little bit. And this is not all from a distinctly secular humanist position. But I want to make the argument about tolerance and the lack thereof in our society. And it goes both ways. But you'll notice in particular that the political left takes pride in its tolerance and its acceptance. But it's not justifiable. You say, why is it not justifiable? Well, if you don't worship at the altar of things like gender ideology or the LGBTQ agenda, then you're just an ignorant, hate-filled bigot. Folks, that's not tolerance. That's not allowing a live-and-let-live position. This is, if you don't come over to my position, you're the one that's wrong. And what Christianity is saying is that the gospel will stand on its own, and God's truth is what it is, and whether or not you believe it doesn't change it. It only impacts your life. I saw something interesting that happened over Thanksgiving, and I'm going to share this because I think it's also applicable. Um, As part of the official Democrat platform, It says in their document, Democrats believe in bringing the American people together, 
not stoking division and distrust. But you might have also seen over Thanksgiving that the Biden campaign released a guide of how to respond to, and I quote, crazy MAGA nonsense from relatives at the holidays. And it gave ideas for talking points. You can look it up. I'm not making this up. Nothing like bringing people together, folks. Do you not see the hypocrisy of this? And secular humanism ultimately holds that this life is all there is. And I want to make one more point about my last point about tolerance, too. I pulled up an article, and here's the title of the article. Commander's cornerback, Kendall Fuller, being called out for wearing cleats, promoting, and it's in quote marks, anti-LGBTQ group. Now, the very premise of the NFL's uh, program, uh, my calls, my cleats, is that it's my calls and it's my cleats. You don't have to like it. You can wear your own cleats. You can put your own calls on your cleats. But this is his cause. Well, you know what his dastardly cause was that's so evil and so anti-LGBTQ? Fellowship of Christian athletes, people. I'm not making this up. They are mad at him because he is promoting fellowship of Christian athletes. But if you hold to a biblical position, you're not permitted to do that. You're supposed to worship at the altar of all of this stuff. Or otherwise, you're just ignorant, bigoted, hate-filled, and all the other ideas that go along with it. This is where we are. This is the culture that we're working with. Secular humanists do not believe that people have souls or that there's an afterlife in heaven or hell. They believe this life is all there is. And um, I've got a quote here from Tim Keller in his book, Making Sense of God. He just went to be with the Lord here recently after pancreatic cancer. And he said the, the Russian philosopher Vladimir Solyov sarcastically summarized the ethical reasoning of secular humanism like this. And I quote, Man descended from apes, therefore we must love one another. The second clause does not follow from the first. If it was natural for the strong to eat the weak in the past, why aren't people allowed to do it now? Given the secular view of the universe, the conclusion of love or social justice is no more logical than the conclusion to hate or destroy. These two sets of beliefs in a thoroughgoing scientific materialism and in liberal humanism simply do not fit with one another. Keller says, each set of beliefs is evidence against the other, and many would call this a deeply incoherent view of the world. You know what else I think is a deeply incoherent view of the world? People who say they believe the Bible and follow after Jesus Christ and then hold to blatantly contrarian positions as to what the Bible actually teaches. That's a tremendously illogical position, spiritually and in every other way. So what do we do to share the gospel with secular humanists? Stay firm in Scripture as your authority, because that's our basis. Again, if, if we don't get past that, we're not going anywhere with the gospel. Utilize your personal testimony of how God has changed your life. Affirm what you can to find common ground, so if there are talking points that you can have a good conversation with somebody, understand, ask questions, try to hear where they're coming from. But know this, you're going to have to expect the moral high ground argument in opposition. 
the favorite argument, and it's tired and worn, but any atheist or secular humanist that you talk to is going to bring this argument up, so just be prepared for it, is if God is good, then why could there be evil and bad things happen in the world? Now, it's a tired argument, but it's, it's an argument that continually comes up. Well, the theological answer to that that we would have is that sin entered into the world. And because of sin, there's chaos and there's problems and there's all these issues. And we got to be willing to answer that question, though. They might not accept it or agree with it, but we got to be able to answer it. Challenge what you need to challenge. We don't have to cower. Listen, folks, we're in a position now as Christians. We've got to be kind. We've got to be winsome. We've got to be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. But the church in many ways has grown cowardly. And in many ways, people of faith that have strong convictions, that understand and believe these things, they've gotten quiet because they've gotten marginalized. And we've got stuff happening where we're pushed to the margins, where we're intolerant. We don't like to not be liked. We don't like to be called names when we disagree with the state religion. We, we don't like to be not liked. And it causes us to shrink back and not say anything. But we are called as Christians to contend for the truth, to contend for the faith. We don't have to be nasty about it. We need to be kind about it. We need to be spirit-filled. We need to be loving. But listen, it's time that we start pushing back on some of the nonsense that is absolutely destroying our, our country, absolutely destroying our families, absolutely destroying individ individuals. And we've got to step forward and say something because if the church doesn't, who's going to do it? If people that actually believe the Bible is true aren't going to say anything, who's going to say anything? And we've got to get some boldness in doing that. And then the last part of this is clearly share the gospel and trust the Holy Spirit because nobody's getting saved if it's not for the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. I close with this quote by Keller. This is the second quote from Keller, but here's what it says. These are Christianity's unsurpassed offers, a meaning that suffering cannot remove a satisfaction not based on circumstances, a freedom that does not hurt, but rather enhances love, an identity that does not crush you or exclude others, a moral compass that does not turn you into an oppressor, and a hope that can face anything, even death. And he did it. Keller went all the way to the end, and he faced it with a great testimony for Christ. So let me tell you where I am. I am a thoroughgoing theological conservative from the start to the finish. Every fiber of my being is a conservative theological position, belief in the Bible, belief in God's word. And I'll tell you what's happened to me. As I've gotten older, I've not mellowed. I've gotten more resolved in what I believe. And what I believe now is what I believed 45 years ago when I got saved. I just believe it better and I know more about it now. And I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the truth. I will not back up from the truth. And I will not be silent. And we've got to stand up and we've got to be bold for Christ. We've got to be bold in the gospel. And God will use that. And we can do it again with kindness, convictional kindness. We can do it with respect and tolerance. In fact, Christians can show what real tolerance is, even when the world doesn't understand it. And this is, I think, where our hearts need to be as followers of Jesus. Let's bow our heads together, and I'm going to wrap up for tonight.
Father God, these are, these are hard issues. But they're only hard issues because of our sin nature. You've shown us clearly what wisdom is. You've shown us what foolishness is. And you've shown us that how we can discern that. So give us a discerning spirit, first of all. That by the spirit and the word, we would be able to filter ideas and worldviews in a way that would help us see life as it really is and eternity as it really is. Give us a love for people around us. We once were lost, but we've been found in, in Christ. We once were blind, but now we can see. And God, we thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ, the hope of the gospel. God, we realize that we've been called to be salt and light in a world that doesn't necessarily like salt or light. And I pray that we would do it well. Forgive us for being, uh, at times, cowardly about what we believe, of being ashamed of what we believe. And give us a holy boldness that would step into the arena and not be afraid to contend for the truth, to push back on what's being pushed on us, but to do it with a kindness and a love and a conviction that only the Holy Spirit can produce. And that's what I pray for. And I pray as a result of it, we wouldn't win arguments, but we would win souls. I pray as a result of it that there would be more people in heaven because they follow after Jesus Christ. And I pray and know, Father, that the victory's already been won, but we get to be a part of it in the here and now. And we want to be faithful to that. So bless us to that end. Again, God, we pray for the blessing on the remainder of this week. And we ask you, Lord, to bless it in a special way. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.